I'm going to read to you Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. This same section is recorded also in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. You don't have to mark that, just just for your own information. And then we'll uh, spend some time hashing it out. Uh, Verse 1 says, Then he arose from there, speaking of Jesus, and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again. And as he was accustomed, he taught them again. The Pharisees came, as they tend to now and then, and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Well, Moses permitted a man to, divorce, uh, to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't write the Bible, just so you know that. We'll get that straight. Uh, I know that the minute you start to read something like this, it's quite possible that your heart rate begins to elevate. Uh, These things are attached to a wide variety and a wider range of emotions and experiences. And there's no way in this service I'll be able to address every unique situation. We'll spend some time talking about the applications of these things, the challenges of these things. Some of you have, for your, for your adult life, because of a divorce in your past, have been beat up by Christians, have been beat up even feeling like beat, being beat up by the Word of God. And so we'll talk about some of the more specific issues as we uh, get through the passage. Having been the pastor of, of this church for about 12 years and Having taught Bible studies before that, I've been with some of you while you've gone through uh, dealing with adultery in your, in your marriage, while you've gone through difficulties in getting along. I've been your marriage counselor as well as your pastor, or you've got counseling from somebody else. I've cried with you, prayed for you, uh, tried to encourage you to pray together with your spouse. Uh, I know all of the challenges, and I've watched the painful processes. Uh, some have been success stories. And some have been very difficult, uh, I'll say, failures. Uh, don't, we'll, we'll talk about that as we move on, too. Um, so I know, as we talk about marriage and divorce, these are challenging things. I, I've probably done 30 or so marriages since I started pastoring. And every time I meet with a young couple, I try to discourage them from the process. If I can do anything to talk you out of getting married, please let me do that. Now, that's not because I don't love marriage. I've been married 20 years, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. I believe, I've just seen in my marriage, uh, we've grown. We've grown together. It's great when you get to that point as a couple, and you can, you just know what each other's thinking, and you finish sentences, and there's just a familiarity that, to me, is a beautiful and very enjoyable thing. And so, uh, you know, 20 years we've been married. Some of you have been married 30 years, 40 years. Some of you have been married two times, three times, four times. We're all over the board here in this room. Um, 
And so this passage, as we talk about marriage and divorce, and I say, I try to talk young couples out of it, it's not because I have issues with the institution of marriage. It's because if I can talk you out of it, maybe you shouldn't get married in the first place. Interesting statistic I read, 100% of all divorces began with a marriage. I'm not much for statistics, but that one you can take to the bank. Uh, I will give you one other statistic, though, if I can... uh, if I can find it here. In America, there's one divorce approximately every 36 seconds. That's nearly 2,400 divorces a day, uh, 16,800 divorces per week, and 876,000 divorces a year. Times that by two, and that gives you the number of people, uh, 1.6 million people involved, how many children involved. You know, I could give you the statistics uh, on a variety of things regarding marriage and divorce. You don't need them. You know, you live it. We live in real time. You've been through the pains. You've seen the challenges. You're living it right now with shared custody and with domestic um, court and with you know, all of the, the different trappings and challenges. And so, you know, all of this is, is understood as we get into this passage. But I want to say this as we, as we get into this also, is that um, in Christ, there's no condemnation. So you may be convicted here hearing the word of God. And that's a good thing. Being convicted is a healthy thing. That means you're still teachable. That means you've got the spirit of God living in you. And there's, there's conviction is not something to be run from. The spirit of, of God convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. That's a gr- I love it when the Lord convicts me. I remember when I first got convicted of watching R-rated movies. Now, I'm not saying you can't watch R-rated movies. What I'm saying, there was a day in my life I was watching an R-rated movie. And I was like, wow, I kind of shouldn't be watching this. I'm like not enjoying this at all. That's conviction. That helped me grow. That's a good thing. You have to admit you were wrong, maybe, but that's okay, too. But if you leave here feeling condemned, then I've done something wrong in presenting you a God that condemns. God wants you to know the truth so you can build your life on the truth. And, and we'll talk more about those things as we get to the end. We'll have a little bit of a Q&A where I'll present some things that I've seen over the years questions people have, and I'll try to answer those in brief for you as well. But that's by way of long introduction. Jesus, verse 1, he he was in the north. He rose from there, there being in the region of the Galilee, in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And instead of coming directly south through the area of Samaria on the west bank or the western side of the Jordan River, he chooses to come down on the east side It's what it says, the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. That's always the east side, the area we now call Jordan. And he comes down on that side. Uh, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. And it's on that side that the multitudes are gathered to him again, as he was accustomed, and he is teaching them. So he's left Galilee. He's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He will never return to Galilee, to his home base of Capernaum. He has said goodbye uh, to that area. I'll tell you why the east side of the Jordan is important in just a second. First, we'll introduce ourselves to the Pharisees. We've met them before. These guys, do they like Jesus? Are are they happy about his ministry? No, we we know that that they're not. He is a threat to them. He's a threat to their religious customs and traditions. His truth that he brings, his popularity has, uh, has really become a threat. They have envied him. They want to see him dead. They want to see him less popular first, and then they want to see him dead second. So when they come to him and they ask him, and the question is here, 
they say as he's teaching, um, Rabbi, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, they weren't interested in the answer. It says it right there. They were testing him. And some people come to church with that same kind of attitude. Well, I'll come, but, and every word I say is under scrutiny. Every, you're not listening here because you want to learn what the Bible says. You're just listening to find an excuse to point fingers or to find fault with something in the church or something in this church or something in this pastor. And I understand that's, that's not uncommon. It's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were just trying to find, they were trying to trap Jesus in his own words to make him less popular in front of the people. They were trying to, um, to uh, and then also possibly, which is why the region is important, to get him killed. Now, the region on the other side of the Jordan, the east side, is also called Perea. And the uh, person overseeing that area, the person in charge of that area, governing that region, was a man named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. Uh, if you remember back to our study of John the Baptist, you'll remember it was John the Baptist that was imprisoned in the Marcarius prison where Herod Antipas lived, where his, his castle, his royal palace, and the prison was. Do you remember why John the Bap- Baptist was put into prison? Because he confronted Herod about his adulterous and incestuous relationship. And, and that didn't go over well with the woman that was involved. He has him arrested, eventually then in prison he's beheaded. So if Jesus now, being asked this question about divorce, if he comes out and says what he normally says, because they knew how he felt already. They knew from Matthew chapter 5. They knew from the Sermon on the Mount how Jesus felt about divorce. And so if we can get him to say that, publicly here, maybe Herod Antipas will have him arrested too and will be rid of him. So their question is very well thought out from that standpoint on the one hand. The second part is this issue of marriage and divorce, it's not new to our age, is it? Clearly not. They had their people on all different spectrums of the, all different uh, across the board spectrum of where they fell down on, on this topic and this issue. Just like today, if you ask you know, 20 different Christians about how they feel about marriage or divorce or homosexual marriage or whatever, you're going to get all kinds of different answers. Some will take a more conservative view. Some will take a more liberal view. Well, it was the same way in that day. So if they can get Jesus to align himself with the liberal group or the, the, the middle-of-the-road group or the conservative group, then he's just alienated another group. So that will make him less popular. Does that make sense? I think it does. We would understand that just by, see, this is why a lot of churches will never say what they really believe. They'll just avoid topics because they're afraid to alienate people. And I don't like to alienate anyone either. But that doesn't mean we, we, we soft pedal the truth. I'm not going to tell you what I think. I'm not going to tell you what Calvary Chapel thinks. I'm going to tell you what the Word of God says, which is what Jesus ultimately will do. He won't align himself with this rabbi or that denomination or this group He'll say, well, let's get in to see what the Word of God says. And that's really good advice for me and you, isn't it? Well, the Republicans say this and the Democrats say that. Who cares? What does God's Word say? That's what we want to know. So they're trying to trap him. They really don't care. They're not saying, well, Rabbi, you know, we've got these questions and we know you teach the truth, so can you shed some light on this for us? There's no, none of that heart is in, in that passage. They're, they don't care about that. So they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife And Matthew records really what would be the rest of the sentence for just any reason. So it was the ancient version of no-fault divorce. 
Can we divorce for just any reason? Now, I'm going to have, well, can you pull up Deuteronomy 24 onto the screen? Because this is where the issue sprang from, from an interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. So you don't have to go there. It's up on the screen. I'll turn there. First place where divorce is mentioned in terms of, uh, in terms of the law, the Old Testament. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, this is happening. They're, they're marrying and being given in marriage. Matter of fact, the Jews thought very highly of marriage in terms of their commandment to be fruitful and multiply. So to them, marriage was very important. But there were some problems, as we can amen today, with staying married. The issue is it's not hard to get married. The challenge is staying married. So when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens, as it sometimes does, that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Okay, so this is the issue. What's being presented is the issue. He gets married. They get married. By the way, a woman did have some rights. She, couldn't, she didn't have the right of divorce herself at this time, but she could petition the court, so to speak. If there was something her husband was doing, she could let the court know what their husband was doing, and the court could sort of enforce him to divorce her. So it was always the man that would perpetuate the divorce or initiate the divorce, but sometimes the woman could have a say in that. So, and this is all actually meant to protect the rights of the women in that culture. And I'll, and I'll explain that in a minute. But the issue is, is largely revolving around this sentence. He finds no fa- she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness in her. Well, the question is, what does that mean, some uncleanness? The Hebrew doesn't give us a whole lot of help. It means uh, some nakedness or something that's uncovered uh, or something that is shameful, a shameful thing. Well, what does that mean? Because we know it can't mean adultery. Why can't it mean adultery? Well, it can't mean adultery because the punishment for adultery was being stoned to death. So it doesn't do a whole lot of good to give divorce papers to someone who's dead. Some of you might like to do that, uh, but that doesn't work in this scenario. So it can't be divorce. It can't be um, uh, adultery. And this is where the rabbis would spend their time batting these things back and forth. And so you had the conservative group was aligned with a guy named Rabbi Shimai, and he took the very strict view that this was some moral failing on, a, on the part of the wife. It could be that she uh, did something like um, speak to other men besides her husband in public. That would have been considered a shameful thing. Or to let her hair down. They took their head coverings very seriously. And so to let your head be uncovered in public was tantamount to being a prostitute. That gives you some insight into 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11 and also, you think about uh, Muslim culture today and the head coverings and the, the body coverings. To not be, unco- not be covered in that culture is, is the same as being naked. They just take that very seriously. So they would align with the more strict. That's all it can be. Uh, they all recognized that divorce was an option. That they, no, none of them argued about getting divorced. The challenge was what would institute or what would initiate the process. So number one, you had the real strict group. Then you had the, excuse me, the conservative group. Then you had the more liberal group. This was aligned with a guy named Hillel. And Hillel said, well, some uncleanness can be any number of things. It could be if your wife burns your toasts or put too much salt on your eggs. Could be that if she talks bad about your parents, she says bad things about the in-laws. Watch out for that. Could be anything. 
and that would be grounds for divorce. That would be more like the no-fault divorce. You know, this, look, we recognize that if anybody wants to find a reason for divorce, they can find it. I mean, my wife, she married an occupational therapist who became a horseshoer who now works as a pastor. I think that's grounds for divorce. I mean, she could say, I never signed up for this. You had a secure job at the hospital, and I, I, this is what I signed on for. This isn't, what, this isn't what I signed on for. That's grounds for divorce. You know, the vows, when, we, when I say that, when I, when I officiate a, a wedding, and I lead a couple through their vows, the standard vows, you know, you know, for, you take this woman or take this man for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. Well, I heard of one girl that in answering those vows said, yes, no, yes, no, no, yes. Sickness, health, no, yeah, never mind. Um, maybe it's just not that funny. Uh, but that's a lot of times what it's like. I mean, if you want to find a reason for divorce, you can find it. Because we, we just, we marry human beings just like ourselves. And we get into this relationship called marriage, and it presents us with some really interesting challenges that have to be worked out. And uh, so you can find, so this middle group, Hillel, you know, they would find all these different reasons. Now, there was one guy even more so than that. This is Rabbi Akiba. He would say that under this section where it says she finds no favor or no grace in his eyes, that could mean that he has found a woman more beautiful and relative to her, she is now has an uncleanness and she is not, not finding favor in her eyes, in, in, excuse me, in his eyes. So you could divorce according to him just for finding someone better. Now, if you look at um, no-fault divorce today, it's very interesting that um, Ronald Reagan, it was 1969 that Ronald Reagan in California signed no-fault divorce into law, and all the rest of the states followed uh, just after that. And he would look back and say it was one of the biggest mistakes of his political career. Now, Ronald Reagan was a divorced man, and part of the challenges with fault divorce, because there was a time when, when you wanted to get divorced, recognizing this was a legal arrangement, according to the, to the state, was a legal arrangement. And so to undo what was legally done, a contract, you had to go before the judge. And you had to give a reason why you should be able to get out of this contract. And so it was abusiveness, it was adultery or some infidelity, something like that. You'd bring it to the judge, and the judge would hear the matter and then make his decision. Well, the problem with that was, is if you wanted to get divorced and there wasn't a reason, you could perjure yourself and make something up. So to avoid perjury in court, Reagan just said, because his wife had accused him of mental abuse. And so he said, you know what, let's forget about that. Let's make this easier so that there's, people aren't, you know, tempted to perjure themselves in court and let's just do no-fault divorce. And he would look back on that and say it was the worst mistake of his political career. What other contract can you think of where one person can choose to break the contract without the consent of the other person? Try that with your mortgage. Just call up the bank and say, yeah, I don't feel like paying anymore. You know, I, just, I, don't, I don't feel like the contract anymore. I'm kind of done with it. Just, I don't, I don't like the house anymore. Uh, yeah, you ever try that? And what do you think the bank would say? We've got a contract. Try with your cell phone company, Right? I mean, this is a stupid cell phone, and you can't get out of the contract. But marriage now, 
you can't stop the other party. If the other, and you guys, see again, you guys know this because some of you have been through it, some of you are going through it now. So you know the frustration, the difficulty. When one person decides it's over, that means it's over. You can try to stall it. You can try to prohibit it. But legally, there's nothing you can do. The court will eventually force you to participate in that divorce, even against your own will. This legal transformation, one article wrote, was only one of the more visible signs of the divorce revolution then sweeping the United States. From 1960 to 1980, the divorce rate more than doubled. From 9.2 per thousand married women to 22.6 divorces per thousand married women. This meant that while less than 20% of couples who married in 1950 ended up divorced, about 50% of couples who married in 1970 did. And approximately half of the children born to married parents in the 1970s saw their parents part, compared to only about 11% of those born in the 1950s. Today, what do we see divorce-wise? Of course, many of you know financial issues top, you know, are at the top of the list for why people get divorced. Facebook is at the top of the list of, of uh, perpetuating and, and assisting in divorce proceedings. A lot of, I think it's something like 80% of lawyers refer to Facebook uh, during divorce proceedings. A lot of people, uh, for them, it's a matter of personal happiness. I'm just, my spouse doesn't make me happy. Look, if you got into marriage because you thought your spouse would make you happy, uh, no doubt you're disappointed. <laughs> yeah, you can turn the lights back on. Thank you. Um, that's not what marriage is for. But that's one of the reasons. Because now, what do we value as a culture? Well, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if my spouse ain't doing it for me, then I'm out of here to find someone else who can make me happy. And four marriages later, you're still looking. Because happiness, true joy, isn't something you find in your circumstances or someone else. Otherwise, you have to manipulate people to make you happy. It'll never work. Until you have peace on the inside, you're never going to have peace on the outside, no matter how many spouses you go through. And that's not meant to be condemning. It's meant to encourage you to, to get to know the Prince of Peace this Christmas season. And when he comes to live in your heart, everything changes. Personal happiness, boredom. They're just bored with them. I'm just bored. You make me bored. I'm moving on. Lack of romance. So what this says is that we believe, we've come to believe that marriage is not really about um, being loyal, about uh, duty, about duty of a uh, fulfillment of a contract, fulfillment of, of a commitment. Those things we value. Look, commitment is not something we value very highly these days. Well, if it suits me, I'll do it. If it doesn't, I won't. And, but it's about whatever makes me feel good today. And so marriage has sort of fallen into that category uh, of these things. And uh, sometimes it's just midlife crisis is now a reason people are getting divorced. I'm having a midlife crisis. And so nothing was different then. Can we just get divorced for any reason? So back to Deuteronomy 24, and then we'll get back to Mark chapter 10. So if this happens, he writes your certificate of divorce, which is a certificate of cutting. It means it cuts the relationship. It cuts off the thing that God had joined. And we'll, that Mark 10 describes that. He puts it in her hand and he sends her out of his house. So when she's departed from the house and goes and becomes another man's wife, this is verse 3 up on the screen, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, 
then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the, sin on the land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So it seems that we don't get this from God in terms of his, his outlining of how to do divorce. What we get is when this happens, because they had this, evidently this habit or this tradition had developed of giving this, uh, of getting divorced and then marrying someone else, and then going back to your first spouse again. It could be that they pick this up in Egypt. So God is bringing some, some clarity to this, some parameters to this. He says, no, when you get divorced, before you get divorced, take it seriously. Why? Because you can't ever have her back again. And so it, it stopped easy divorcism. Well, I'll get divorced this morning. I'll go out and have a fling, and then I'll just take my wife back this afternoon. Yeah, that's what God said. And so the letter of divorce sets the wife free to be remarried. In their eye, this is how it was working for them. So uh, the Pharisees would teach this. Jesus said it. You've heard it was said that, um, that a, a man, if he wants to get a divorce, let him give his wife a, a note of divorcement or a, a writ of divorcement. And, uh, but Jesus said, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for anything other than sexual immorality commits adultery. And whoever marries her who has been divorced also commits adultery. So Jesus is saying to them, by your teaching and perpetuating of these things, you're actually causing a lot of people to commit adultery. Because you were saying, hey, no problem. Don't worry about it. Just write the letter of divorce and no big deal. Does that make sense? Okay, back with me to Mark chapter 10. It's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for for any reason, just testing him. Verse 3 says, And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? So that's why we went to Deuteronomy 24. Moses is the authority. What did Moses say? Well, they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. See, Moses never commanded them to get divorced. And there are situations today. I've seen people in the midst of adultery that you don't, it's not a command for you to divorce. If you've been through adultery, maybe you're involved in it right now. Maybe that's a situation in your home. There's not a command to get divorced. Adultery, if there's adultery in your relationship, depending on how you deal with it, it can actually make your marriage stronger. If you start to ask the questions, why did this happen? How did this happen? How did we avoid it? What brought this? What were you looking for? What, where, was I falling short? Were you falling short? You know, I had, I had a couple in the office uh, a couple years ago, and I'd heard that the husband was involved in an emotional affair. And so, you know, right away I'm on the phone like a, you know, like the dogs of hell. The hound, I'm like a hound of hell. Get down, come on down to the office. And he sat in front of me and I told him exactly what he should do. And I was really hard on him. I mean, I laid into this poor guy. And I'd later on go apologize to him. And I just feel that way, you know, when I feel that way about family. You know, I want to see the family is the core of our society. Family is the core of the church. And I don't like to see Satan win because our battle's not against flesh and blood. I don't like to see Satan destroy the picture of Christ in the church. I don't like to see what it does to families. I don't like to see what it does to kids. I don't like to see the pain, the, the difficulty. So I start laying into this guy, right? What I failed to realize was he was hurting too. He was, now that doesn't, doesn't, you know, somehow authorize him to do what he did. But the point is people do stuff because they're hurting and they're desperate. They're saying something. So I should have taken more time 
to listen to him and then tear him up. But I tore him up first, and so I, we had coffee, and we've since repaired, and I had to apologize for being insensitive. And so if I'm ever insensitive to you, just pull up this sermon. I apologize from now and forevermore for being insensitive, but I get that way about marriage. I get that way about my own marriage. I've got to protect my marriage, because you don't think Satan wants to take down a pastor's family? You don't think Satan is gunning for me and my wife? Oh, my wife and I are known to have a sanctified conversation now and then. Believe me. But Satan would love to take us down. And I can't do it just because I don't want to do it before God. I don't want to do it to her. And I don't want to do it for the sake of the church either. Moses permitted a man. He never commanded it. You can recover from divorce. You can actually make your marriage stronger. I mean, sorry, you can, reco- huh. you can recover from adultery. You can recover from divorce too. That's another situation though. But you, you don't have to. People will come to me and say, well, should I leave my husband? Should I leave my wife? Look, I am not going to tell you what to do. Because the last thing I need is your husband knocking on my door with a gun saying, you told my wife to leave me. Uh-uh, I'm not going there. I'll tell you what the Word of God says. Now you've got to decide what to do with it. You have to figure out how that works out in your life. What about abusive situations? What about emotional abuse? What about emotional abandonment? Man, these are some of the hardest things we have to deal with. And they're not always black and white. They're not always cut and dry. So we pray and we cry and we seek the Lord on these things. So they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce. And Jesus answered, verse 5, and said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this precept. It was not a commandment. It was an allowance because we're human And I've sat with couples 17 years under the bridge, 17 years of water under the bridge, 17 years of strife and difficulty, never getting help, never getting counseling, always arguing, never growing personally, never getting closer to the Lord. Look, there's simple things. If your marriage is on the rocks or you're struggling, there are simple things that you can do. Rarely do I find a couple that's both in the Word, in fellowship, serving the Lord, that's also getting divorced, rarely. Matter of fact, from one in every two, it goes to one in a thousand for couples that are worshiping the Lord together. One one out of a thousand couples gets divorced if they're really walking the walk and not just talking the talk. But in the church, it's the same, you know, two to one, or excuse me, one out of every two. Same statistic in the church because not everybody in the church is seeking the Lord. And, and And I've gone, oh, you know, it just, there, there's so much anger built up and so much unforgiveness built up and so much bitterness built up. It's like, I don't know, you know, I don't know how we can ever get this back together. And there's, so, there's not a couch long enough to fit the two people to sit, you know, so far apart because there's just so much emotion. And the first thing I try to do is convince them, look, you guys are on the same team. You're on the same team. You want the same thing. You want a happy marriage? Yes. You want a happy marriage? Yes. Well, we, this should be easy. We both want the same thing. Shouldn't that make it easier? It should, because then we can get there. But not if you're not willing to submit yourself to the Lord. Not if you're not willing to take personal stock and examine yourself and have the Word of God examine you and start to do what God says. Not if you're not willing to worship the Lord, to serve the Lord, to develop that relationship. Then I can't offer you any promises. But he said, it's because of the sclerocardia. Maybe you've heard the word scleroderma, which is a hardening of the skin. Maybe you've got that. 
or a hardening of the arteries. That word sclera means hard and cardia is heart. Sclerocardia is the diagnosis, Jesus says. The problem, listen carefully, the problem is not with the institution of marriage. The Bible says marriage is God's institution which he loves. And that's why he hates divorce because it messes with family, it messes with kids. And he hates divorce because he loves people. And he loves marriage and marriage is a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. The problem isn't with marriage. What's the problem with, folks? The problem's with my sinful heart, your sinful heart. The problem is my flesh and my selfishness. That's where the problem is. So time goes by, things aren't dealt with, the heart hardens, and it's hard to repair. So, so they didn't kill each other. They were allowed to have this certificate of divorce. But Jesus says, but from the beginning of the creation, it wasn't that way. So instead of going back to Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 24, let's go back to Moses, Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back to the beginning. This passage, listen, there's so much discussion. Marriage is being redefined in our day and age, isn't it? It's an attempt to. God's not redefining it. Mankind is redefining it. And you, to have any discussion about marriage, anytime you talk to people, go back to the beginning. It answers every issue. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's the first part of marriage. God made them male and, say it, female. You just, I mean, it's, there's never been any confusion about that. You just look under the hood and you know which is which. I'm just, I'm not trying to be crude or insensitive. I'm just saying there's usually not confusion about gender. The confusion is what my gender identity on the inside. Now, that's a recent development. I don't know why. I don't know how. It's identity issues. But physical gender, for the most part, except for in rare occasions, is not a debatable issue. You is what you is. And, by the way, we can never truly have marital equality. Listen, it's called the Marital Equality Act, and I understand it has to do with rights and things like that. I'm, I'm not debating that. But we'll never truly have marital equality. You know why? Because two men will never be able to produce a baby, not without scientific help. And two women will never be able to produce a baby. God's creation, God's design, reveals God's plan. I think he's a pretty good designer, don't you? Don't you love to see something that's well-designed and it works good together? Well, let me tell you, conception is a miracle. And it is a beautiful miracle of the design of God that it works. So consistently, I mean, look at all you guys. He made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, when he said that, there were no fathers and mothers. Adam didn't have a father and, and Eve not. He was created by God. This reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, speaking of things to come in the future, think, speaking of a plan that will last through the ages. He will leave his father and mother and be joined or glued to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So, he says, here's the plan. There's going to be a man and a woman, not two men and three women, not three men and one woman, a man and a woman. There's, not a, a, there's no bestiality here. There's no polygamy. None of that stuff is in view here. Two, two people, one man and one woman. That's still God's plan. No one's changed it. No one can better it. It's still the plan of God. You can argue with it, but you can't argue that against it. Does that make sense? Man shall leave his father and mother. The first thing he does is he cleaves himself to his wife. 
he, they're joined, they're glued together. God glues them together. I love crazy glue. That's some strong stuff. And if you want things to stick together, you crazy glue them. My Bible is held together with crazy glue. That's a true story. When you want things to stick, you glue them together. Now, you can weld two pieces of steel together. Welding is another way, glued, welded. These are all the words used. It's two people having this very strong bond where there is a dissolving of, any, of one and the other where they just become one. There's no longer two. There's not two people. There's just one. When you weld two pieces of steel together, you melt the steel so that the molecular structure of one piece of steel actually begins to flow into the molecular structure of the other. In a good weld, you can't see where one piece of steel begins and one ends. They're now one piece of steel. So what happens when you try to cut that? Can you ever cut it cleanly in the place where it was joined? No, that place doesn't exist. The two become one. And that's the wording that is being used here. The two are joined, the man joins himself to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The most notable way that we see that happen is in having children. That's, there's one now. See? Somebody agree with me in that. Having, they are literally two becoming one. Half of his DNA, half of her DNA, they, and, but when they're good, they're, they're yours. And when they're bad, they're... No, when they're bad, they're yours. When they're good, they're mine. You know, they resemble... Yeah, you, can, you know the deal. There was a guy in the church I was talking to a while back, probably a couple years ago. He'd been married 50, 60 years. We were talking about marriage. And he said, you know, Steve, my generation, speaking of his generation, he said, when something was broken, we fixed it. We didn't get a new one. We fixed it. Stuff was meant to last. And when it broke, it was worth fixing it. We didn't just throw it away. But we live in that throwaway culture. We just had a, our dryer broke. It started eating our clothes. It was more expensive to fix it than it was to run up the lows and get a new one. And unfortunately, we've so minimized marriage to the point where I met a guy at Jiffy Lube. We were talking about life, and he brought up the fact that he was getting married, married and told me this was going to be his practice marriage. He's going to work all the details out on this one and then, then marry his real wife. I said, let me pray for you. Because she is going to kill you. <laughs> the two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Making babies is the easy part. Doing life together is where the challenges come in. Ephesians 5 tells us marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, right? There are things about your Christian life that if you get those right, marriage will be a piece of cake. Christ being the groom, the church, me being the bride. I'm not ashamed to be called a bride when it comes to Christ. Uh, there is this Jesus saying, you know, if you want to be a follower of mine, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. I think that'd be true of marriage too, right? Deny yourself. You don't get into marriage to complete you. That'll never work. God's mathematics is one plus one equals good. One. That's God. Now, how do you divide one? You can't have a half a person. That's what happens from divorce. You get half people. And that's why it's so painful. That's why it's so hurtful. That's God's mathematics. One plus one equals one. 
but working that out through submission. Learning to yield to God will help you yield to one another. Learning to, uh, to worship the Lord. Learning to submit yourself. Learning to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That, that relationship, everything that's needed in this relationship to be good, to be a Christian, is the same thing that's needed in this relationship. If you do this one well, this one's a piece of cake. If this one's hard, it's likely because this one is hard for you. So you do, you do this thing, you get that right, and this one just follows. The same personal attributes are necessary. Two shall become one flesh, then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what who has joined? The court. What God has joined. This is a thing not just before the pastor, not before the court. This is a thing you do before God. So I say to you that are in here that are not married yet, choose wisely, grasshopper. I'm telling you what, because there's two times I see people be really unreasonable. Number one, when they're getting married. I mean, people, we've known each other at least two weeks now, and we're in love. Oh, man. Now, I'm not saying it can't last after two weeks, but, man, take your time. I try to get kids to wait a year. Wait a year, and if you still feel that way, then get married. Be patient. If you, I, I tell the young couples or, or young, young folks, one of the best rules of thumb I heard was, as, an individual, as a single person, run hard after the Lord. I mean, run hard after the Lord. And if you look next to you and you see someone of the opposite sex keeping up with you, ask them their name. I think that's good marriage advice, isn't it? Because if, if they're, you know, there's a lot of, people will be whatever they need to be during the marriage counseling phase. Then they'll be who they really are once they get married. And then the spouse is going, you said you were a Christian, you know? And, oh. and it gets really complicated. Because they just said whatever they had to say to get married because they're unreasonable. They're getting married and that's it. You can't talk them out of it. And the other time when the people are unreasonable is when they're getting divorced. Man, once that train leaves the station, it's very hard to stop it. It's very hard to stop it. A lot of time, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. And, uh, but I know, I have seen people recover. I have seen people improve and do better. So in the house, his disciples asked him again, verse 10, about the same matter. So he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. If the marriage was never ended in God's eyes, then when you leave that marriage and go and join yourself to another of the opposite sex, it's in his eyes adultery. And I can't soften that. We can talk about it, but I can't soften it. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So am I relegated for the rest of my life to be labeled as an adulterer and adulteress? Do I ever have hope of pleasing the Lord with my life? And some of you have been condemned by churches. There are certain things you can't do because you've been divorced, certain positions you can't hold because you've been divorced, and there are a variety of reasons and a lot of things surrounding that. We begin to do investigation. Okay, what happened? Why did you get divorced? If, it was, if you were the one that initiated it, you know, maybe you regret it. Maybe you look back and go, you know, I was just young. I was dumb. I didn't know what the Word of God said. Lord knows I've done a lot of things because I didn't know what the, the Word of God said. And I'm still growing. And so I say, you know what? If you're, you're remarried, you confess your sin. You say, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. I disobeyed the Word of God. 
and I was wrong. And you can confess that to God today because maybe it's about time you owned your part of it. So you know what? I confess that as sin. And he can, if you confess your sin, the Bible says he is faithful and just to do what, folks? Forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That spot is gone. Now that's not to downplay it, the seriousness of it. But what that's to say is I don't believe God wants any person to live under condemnation. Not Certainly not anybody who's walking with the Lord. Isn't that what the Bible says? There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So if, if that's been you, you've been divorced, you've been, and now you're remarried, hey, whoever you're married to now, stay married to them. Confess anything from the past, get rid of that garbage, have it forgiven, get it out there before the Lord, and then today, you, that's your marriage. Some people were divorced before they were married. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. I know there's so many possibilities and so many complications, but I want to tell you that I really, if God held our sins against us indefinitely, whether it, because divorce, would we agree divorce is not the unpardonable sin? If God held those sins against us, who could stand? We have to be fair. We have to be fair. So again, I don't say those things to minimize divorce, but I also don't see God, I see God talking to a, Jesus talking to a woman caught in the midst of adultery. And he says, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And he turns to the woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and listen to my word. So I think that's a good balance, don't you? I think that's the way we ought to look at these things. There's a thousand other questions that I'm not going to have time to answer today. But I pray that uh, whatever state you're in, whatever status, if you're single, hey, being single is great. If you want to get married, choose wisely. Be careful. Be patient. If you're married and you're struggling, get help. Number one, fix your relationship with God. If, if there, it's a mutual thing, if there needs to be something there dealt with. Number two, get help if you can. Number three, if your spouse wants to depart, won't stay with you, the Bible says, let him go. You're not called to force him to stay with you. You're called to peace. So, challenging stuff, eh? Amen. Let's uh, have the praise team come up and we'll, let's just, it's a little bit after our time, Phil, so if we can just close with a chorus, that'd be great. Let me pray uh, while the praise team comes up. Lord, such important conversation to have, and I pray for the marriages here. The marriages that are represented by husbands, wives, some husbands here without their wives, some wives here without their husbands, single folks, that every situation, Lord, you know them. And I pray that they'd find comfort in your word, that they'd find growth in your word, that they would take in your word like a baby desires the pure milk of his mother's breast. And that we would all be growing daily, that we would be getting stronger and closer to you. And that you would bring couples closer together so they could enjoy a marriage that brings you glory. And any struggles, any, any divisions, Lord, I pray that you just help heal old wounds, forgiving uh, and, and uh, helping to forgive offenses. And Lord, that our marriages may bring you glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen.